Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And this is our review of When a Stranger Calls, starring Camilla Bell, Brian Garrity, Katie Cassidy, Clark Gregg, Tommy Flanagan, and the voice of Lance Hendrickson. Directed by Simon West, released in 2006 on a budget of $15 million, grossed $67 million at the box office, but was universally panned by critics. So, Anna, let's talk a little bit about this week. You know, in the, at the end of our first uh, episode in this retrospective, when we talked about the original, we, we talked about the remake and some of the things that we thought they could do, and then we went through that sequel and we've torn that apart. But we're back here in this, and this film came out in that glut of PG-13 horror that flooded theaters in the wake of Scream and everything else along those lines. I know what you did last summer and all of that kind of stuff. And I, by the time this one came out, that little era of horror had almost run its course completely. And I have often thought that the uh, the panning of this film may be the fact that it came out in that era and that it also makes the dreaded decision in horror is to go PG-13. So I don't know, you know this is your first time seeing it just in general what do you think? Was it a good idea to go back to a remake of it? Was it a story worth telling again? Yes, I think this was a very good remake, actually. It kind of made more, and I'll get into it more into the podcast, but there were a lot of things I think they did right. My only complaint where this is different, and we've said this before, is they made, granted, a a shorter movie. It kind of drug out a little bit, especially towards towards the middle. It kind of drug just to me just a little bit but it was still a fairly short movie and it moved quickly and they did a lot of stuff right but it just it just in the middle part it just drug there's only so many scenes you can have where you know they play the haunting music and you know something's gonna happen and like it's the cat or it's the maid or it's this or that well, well i think you've hit on something is they realize the makers of this film and this and you know it should be noted fred walton who created the original and then did the sequel had uh, nothing to do with this you know there's no mention of him really as a part of any of this except that you know he created characters or whatever but he doesn't even get that credit if i remember right what Simon West and his crew did, and particularly Jake Wade Wall, who who wrote this, and he's also responsible for writing the remake of The Hitcher, which is another one of those that came out in that 
that mix there. They knew that the best part of this story was the babysitter in the house being stalked. And instead of blowing all that in the first 20 minutes, which the last two films did, and then having nowhere to go, they decided we're going to build the whole movie around that. And I will say now that to me has always struck me as the, you know, kind of a dumb moment, but also the genius of this film is that they realize, look, the hook of this is in the house. So, they know they've got to build the whole thing around that, you know, and, and I, I agree with you as far as horror remakes go, th- this is one of the better ones I've ever seen. And and I'll spoil that out of the gate. Now I happen to think a lot of this one and, and the things they do over some of the other stuff I've seen through the years. Oh yeah. There were a lot of, a lot of things I noticed that I was like, yeah, the other movie should have done that. I agree. And, and, before we get any further into the discussion about it, Anna, let's flip this thing on its head a little bit. Since it is a remake, why don't you read the plot summary this time? Okay. <laughs> the film opens on the story of a babysitter and the children she was watching who are found brutally murdered. When the police arrest the perpetrator, they learn he used his bare hands to tear them to pieces. Meanwhile, Jill Johnson is a teenage girl in a crisis, having her boyfriend Bobby cheat on her with her best friend Tiffany. To top it off, Jill has gone 800 minutes over on her cell on her cell phone plan for which her father ben has her take a babysitting job for a wealthy doctor to pay off the debt because she has to work out in the middle of nowhere jill can't attend the big bonfire event with her friends she meets the doctor and his wife and they show her around the elaborate mansion and they inform her the children are already asleep not long after the parents leave jill starts receiving anonymous phone calls her friend tiffany comes over to visit but jill asks her to leave not wanting to get into any more trouble a storm has blocked tiffany's exit down the driveway and when she goes to clear the branch she is attacked by an unknown person and killed the calls continue and each one becomes more alarming as jill gets the impression she is being watched jill calls the police who tell her they can trace the call if she keeps the caller on the line for more than 60 seconds jill succeeds in this and the police inform her the calls are coming from inside the house Jill finds Tiffany's dead body upstairs and is attacked by the stranger. She gets the kids and they run to the greenhouse where Jill finds the maid is also dead. Jill manages to lock the stranger inside the greenhouse, but he quickly escapes and attacks Jill. There is a struggle and Jill manages to stab the stranger with an iron poker before running out of the house into the waiting arms of the police who promptly take the stranger into custody. Jill wakes up in the hospital to phone ringing. She nervously picks it up, but hears nothing. We see her reflection in the mirror and that the stranger is behind her. He grabs her. Jill screams hysterically, which actually wakes her up in the hospital where she, we see she is restrained. The doctors and nurses work frantically to calm her down, leaving us to wonder if the encounter with the stranger has cost Jill her sanity. You know, just hearing you read that, it sounds way more interesting than anything we've watched up to this point. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it flows so much better. And I know it's blasphemy in horror circles to ever say the remake is better than the original, but I'm going to say it now. It's it's a more satisfying, complete film this time around because, like I said in the intro there, it, it, the crux of this movie, they know that the, the real money of it is the girl in the house and well yeah the other thing as i'm reading the plot summary um and thinking about this think of all the stuff we critiqued in the other other movies like one like we say they pay it off and the best part is the girl the babysitter in the house and this whole movie is basically the babysitter in the house which is number one good number two remember when we were doing the last when a stranger calls back we were saying that we should have had um one of the girls to kill the crazy ventriloquist stranger guy and in this one you know jill 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 apparently you know um pokes them so that the police with the poker and gets the kids out and actually checks on the kids and um gets out which was one of the things we critiqued in the second movie and like you said it's a more complete movie and the thing i noticed that i that really struck me about this movie is that the house is kind of a character in it they made this elaborate 
mansion with you know it's very you know she's walking through you know doing the typical babysitter stuff where she's trying on the the um jewelry and stuff first off as there the road is winding up to the house it's you get that it's isolated that it's a it's in a very isolated place then all the glass and mirrors and the water on the lake and then the modernness of the house where you know you walk in a room and the lights pop the lights pop on or something the it's it's its own character and i think that is the major thing they did one of the major top three definitely things they did right with this movie is they made the house a character because you can't tell me this house ends with the glass and looking across and seeing the figure is not and the alarm system and everything is not is not a major a major point and creepier than the first house. I agree that it is a major character. I'll say this, the tension that builds in that first living room, because we feel like the world is getting smaller around Jill in that first mm-hmm. movie, all of that's done by lighting. And I think some of that is the necessity of having no budget and just having to do things quick and cheap. You know, that they really worked with the lighting and it worked. This one works on the opposite end. We've got money now. We spend it on a really nice set. I, I think this is an actual house. And they they had this gorgeous looking idea of let's have a house that's no longer closed off and dark like the first one. And you'll forget the second one with its little weird living room stuff, but have one that's open. So you feel like, uh, you know, Hey, there's plenty of room. I can see what's going on. But the other side of that is it makes you overexposed. And I'm also going to say something else. And this may be reading deeper into it than what they want, but that's sort of the knock of the, you know, Jill's generation is that they're the overexposed, you know, everything's out in the open, so nothing's supposed to surprise them. Well, the same things can still sneak up on them. And and even though it's all this glass and light and everything everywhere, the guy pretty well hides from her for, you know, a bulk of the film until he starts chasing her through the house. And I agree with you. It it makes the tension different and it works better because now we don't just confine her to one room or the kitchen. And we let her run around, and Jill takes a little ownership for herself. And I kind of like the fact that they set it up. The whole setting is neat. And part of that is the way they open the film. And the opening credits, it's, you know, a voiceover from, like, phone calls, and you hear this girl being harassed. And basically we're told that this guy has killed this entire family. We see these cops come in, and, you know, one of them walks away, and he's he's shaking. And I loved it because it's like this portly detective. It's sort of this callback to Brian. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, to... Uh, not to Brian. Charles Durning. Yeah, to not Brian Dennehy. To the other fat, gray-headed guy. Uh, to, uh, to Charles Durning. And... Your callback, you said before it looked like they were carrying the kids out in garbage bags. This time they actually are, which is is really creepy. I, I like it. And I, I, that was another thing I really liked about this one, too, is and I until I watched this one, it didn't register. I'm like, oh, this makes much more sense. It's It's this crazy serial killer. Yeah, apparently. And he's gone and he did all that. He did all that stuff with the family. And I like the creepy way. Like you see, I mean, I have them with my kids all over my house is, you know, the creepy, the, it's not creepy, but it's the family portrait. And then the, the hard cop, the callback to Charles Durning, the throwback to Charles Durning is um, going in and, you know, you get he's old, he's gray headed, he's overweight. He's obviously been in this business for a long time and he opens the door and yet they don't show you anything. But that just the look on his face from the horror of that is just, you know, it's just leaves so much to the imagination and putting that before all this happens and then um, kind of setting that up, I think was a really good idea. And it would have made, it would have made a whole lot more sense in the first movie. Exactly. And the thing is they spend so much of the time in the middle part of the first movie explaining Kurt Duncan. Right. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how weak that made him one, because the the guy portraying him was sick and he looked weakly and and, and, uh, not weakly. He looked, um, you know, too thin and kind of sickly and weak and and stuff. Yeah. And fragile. There you go. And in this one, they don't explain it at all. They don't explain anything about this dude outside of this. 
and you only get really one good shot of his face at the very end. And I love that because it, they know that it really isn't about him. It's about the girl and mm-hmm. the terror. And he is just this force. And I mean, that's a borrowed lift out of the original Halloween is that we knew almost nothing about the Michael Myers character other than just a few drop lines that they gave us. And it made it so much more scary because he could just be anybody. That was the whole point. And that's the thing here is it doesn't matter who he is. It's just that he killed somebody. We go to 150 miles away to meet Jill and we know somehow he's going to get there to her. And that's the creepy part of it. And then they do the other smart thing. They build us some characters and some teenage characters with some actual teenage drama here. Exactly. That was going to be my other point as as well. I like that they built the characters and gave them kind of a backstory. Yeah, I mean, Jill is a, like a track running girl or whatever, and you, mm-hmm. you see, we see her trying to get a lap in around the top of the gym, and she's staring at the boy, and obviously we know uh, this is her guy or her crush or whatever, and finally we give Bobby a face, you know, it's the same character mm-hmm. names, and then we add in two more girls, Tiffany and um, her friend Scarlett. And what we find out is that Bobby has, you know, hooked up or cheated on Jill with Tiffany, uh, played by <laughs> Katie Cassidy. Now, Katie Cassidy, I've seen in a bunch of horror movies. She was in the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. She's been in some other stuff. Um, she was in Gossip Girl, and she's been in all those kind of things. She was in Black Christmas. I mean, she's kind of done those things. But she's really neat. Her dad's David Cassidy, if you you know if you know him, the the actor from you know the Partridge Family and all that stuff. That's sort of her. Class to fame but i like the fact that we gave jill like actual teenage issues you know you cheated on you know you're my one of my best friends and you cheat on me my with my boyfriend you 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 ignorant slut leave me alone you know and i mean (laughs) and i like that and i love the fact that she's in trouble because remember when you could go over your minutes like astronomically over your minutes i mean gosh you hadn't got caught in that (laughs) i know what was so funny is i'm thinking of i'm thinking as I'm, I'm like, who goes, how much was she talking to go over well, 800 she, she minutes? She lays it out. She's like, I talked to you, Bobby, 256 minutes, 128. I mean, she, you know, knows how many times she's talked to him. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so funny. It, I, I'm just like, who goes over that much? But well, I was also g- going to say about the backstories and the char- characters and stuff, giving them... A, a little bit of depth. One of the complaints we had about the first movie was we, we could, they didn't ever really establish was Jill like 16, 17, like this girl where it, where this Jill is, it's established. She's a teenager. She has teenage problems. She's in high school. She's on the track team, blah, blah, blah. But you know, with the one with Carol Kane, we never could where, you know, you said, well, it's never really established. Is she like a college student? Uh, yeah. Because you said one thing was you, um, you wouldn't think a high schooler would drink whiskey or scotch like well, the, she did. The, the way she drank it, it didn't make sense. Like I say, they, they played her a little more adult than maybe she was, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I like the fact that Jill, and they also solve another problem with this phone thing. And this is smart script writing here. Okay. I mean, it, it may be, you may call it one Oh one or whatever, but it is, it is a wise way to do it. Every kid in the, in 2005, 2006 has a cell phone. And so they're <laughs> like, well, Hey, even if you're out in the boonies, you can try to get a signal. How do we get the cell phone out of the kid's hand? Oh, easy. We get dad to ground. <laughs> and uh hey avengers fans there you go there's a uh, i know I, saw uh, so I i forgot he was in this i was like oh agent colson good to see you you know he's in it for like two minutes driving her to the place but i like that the fact that we're going to get the cell phone issue solved because one she's going to be in the middle of nowhere and two she doesn't have it anymore because your dad took it you know, shut off her service and, and i mean i think you're right that was very that was very good script writing that was very good for the plot you know, that moved the plot. That was that was the plot. She got her cell phone taken away because she went over by 800 minutes. And, you know, I mean, I think that that was very, very smart on the writer's part. And the whole thing is we have to set up that Jill is going to have some way to stay in touch with her friends that night, that there's some reason for her to be talking to them. You know, Uh they're going to be at the big bonfire homecoming, whatever it is. And she can't be there, obviously, because she's got to go babysit 
this doctor's kids, and it's a last-minute thing, but the money apparently is good enough that it's going to allow her to pay that astronomical cell phone bill, which I was like, wow, what are they paying for babysitters these days? That's pretty impressive. But <laughs> but, uh, but no no matter what, you, you go with that because it, it makes sense, and you're starting to buy it. And that's the first 20 minutes of this movie. Now, that is a real contrast to what we've had before. There's, there's almost no tension other than that creepy little opening, mm-hmm. and it's all about this girl and her little teenage problems, and it's like you're watching an episode of One Tree Hill. Well, they're they're doing a better job of setting, they're doing a better job of setting up the plot and setting up the story and setting up the characters with this remake than they did previously. I mean, the the made-for-TV sequel, When a Stranger Calls Back, was just basically, it was the same, it was the same setup, you know, you paid it off big in the beginning, you had a middle part trying to explain something, and then you had an end kind of chase finale finale thing. Correct. It was the same. It was the exact same formula, just the little details of it were different. This is something. This is something different. They did right. They explained and set stuff up at the beginning. Wow, you know, like screenwriting one hundred and one people, they did that. And then they gave plausible, and that was one of the complaints we had with the first one. This one gave plausible reasons why a teenager in 2005, 2006 wouldn't have a cell phone. You know, they gave a plausible reason why um, she would be keeping in touch with her friends and stuff like that. And they modernized this by doing something we they know the audience wants, which is a body count. You have to have more than you know, one off-screen mm-hmm. death. You have to have something, but you have to have a reason for her friends to come over there. And it is a cheap setup. I mean, it's always that's been a thing about horror movies. Really, since like '87 is when you started to root for the killer to kill the people you didn't like from high school. Yeah. And you know, the minute you meet Tiffany, you're like, yeah, she's she's so gonna have to die, you know, because she, you know, I thought Bobby may have to die too, but he doesn't actually ever make it to the house. But we had to have somebody else for him to kill you know besides the random maid that we'll get to that in a minute but that that i did like is that there's got to be a reason for these these kids to want to interact with her still you know and want to come to the house but let's just back up a step here after the doctor and his wife leave the house and jill's kind of walking around and stuff i love how she doesn't just sit there and start talking on the phone immediately she does what I would imagine teenage girls would do in that elaborate of a house. She starts trying on all the fancy jewelry and she's checking out the woman's like, you know, elaborate bathroom, which that bathroom is huge. I had apartments smaller than that bathroom in my life. But I mean, that was, that was an amazing thing, but I like that again, it's more just character stuff. And it's all before we get a single phone call before anything else happens. And it, what it's doing for me though, is it's, giving Camilla Bell opportunity to build layers into herself as somebody who, you know what? She screwed up. She's taking responsibility for her actions, but she's also, you know, she's a kid and she's hurt and she's mad and she's upset. And we're kind of seeing her sort of live out this little fantasy for a minute. And I like that they took time to do that in a short movie. They took time to let her be a kid or be a teenage girl. Well, Oh shoot. I have a thought and it left my head. (laughs) I'm sorry. But they're they're also giving us this. They're also giving us reasons to root for her, right. to want her, you know, to pull for her, to like her, which is what you're supposed to do. You, I mean, you don't want someone in that role and the audience be like, "Oh my God, she's a bitch. I hope she dies." You know, yeah. that's not that's not good. So they're giving us reasons to root for her. We're seeing more of her character. We're seeing, you know, that she, you know, okay, she screwed up, but she's basically a good kid. Yeah, exactly. And this is where we fall into the interesting part of this being a remake. You know, there's a term like reboot, remake, reimagining. There's lots of different ways of looking at these things. And, you know, this is not a reboot by any means. Even though at one time they were thinking about a sequel, they just never got it off the ground. I don't know what they would have done with it. I'm kind of glad that never happened. But this is definitely a reimagining. It's we're going to take the idea that was central and worked in the first one, and then we're going to build upon it. And I like that because it starts with how they build the tension of the calls. All right. And the first call that comes in and there's nothing. And it's just like the first film. They're pacing it almost similarly, but then the killer starts talking. And here's the one thing I'm going to ding this movie for though. The stunt casting of Lance Hendrickson as the voice of the stranger. 
You know, if you watch horror movies, you watch sci-fi, you've seen Lance Hendrickson. Nick and I talked a lot about him in the Alien series. He's in that one. He's, you know, in three of those films. He's done a lot of other stuff. But he has this real distinct, very gravelly, you know, smoke 20 marbles a day kind of voice. And the problem is, though, his delivery is so bad. It's like they got him off the street. He did two takes, and they got nothing out of him. There's no emotion to it. And I really, really... I, I miss the one thing I'm missing from the first film is that Kirk Duncan, Tony Beckley's voice had this shaky off kilter strangeness to it. And Lance Henderson sounds like somebody that's just trying to screw with you and scare you just for fun. Yeah. You can't take them seriously. Oh, no, like at all. you could take, um, Kirk Duncan seriously, <laughs> seriously. That, that was pro that was, I mean, like I said, that still haunts me. Probably, I'm, you know, my whole house is asleep, and I'm get when I'm walking to my room and past my children's room, I'm gonna hear that in my head. <laughs> and Have that's you- yeah, and that's the effective part of that one. This one has none of that, and that's unfortunate because I mean, we're talking about a movie here. This one has come out nearly thirty years since the first one. Good chance that majority of the target audience never saw the first one, doesn't know anything about it. And so they have no experience with it other than that dead, have ejected children. I mean, it's awful how he sounds. And I just, oh, it's the, it's the most unfortunate part of this film is because you know, what would have been good if it was like somebody, could you imagine if they did some like really major stunt casting and it was somebody like Johnny Depp? Yeah. Can you imagine how creepy that would sound? He would so pull it off. I think he could so Somebody like I'm trying to think like somebody like Johnny Depp. You get him, or, or you get Alan Rickman. You know somebody. Oh like yeah. You no, know, yeah. I'm almost cool with it being another British actor. You know, go with that voice again. But it's got, and I like the idea. The idea is that we got to get this scary voice, and Tommy Flanagan's voice apparently doesn't work for him. He does have that look because he's got that knife scar on his face, which apparently is very real. He got like outside of a bar one time or something so he's got that weird look but other than that he just sort of moves creepily and we don't ever get to hear him his real voice talk and the lance hendrickson thing it just never works because and the best of this is at the at the climax you know i said last time in the first film they blew the climax of him on the phone with her when he says i want your blood all over me that should be the end line and then she runs out the house which is essentially what happens here before their final fight but the way he does that line is like i want your blood all over me and it just deadpans and and she doesn't react to it at all and i'm like i don't blame you because i had no idea what he just said It, it it made it made that so pointless and that's what i hated Every conversation Carol Kane had with Kurt Duncan, there was you felt like there was an interaction happening. Here, you really get the feel that Camilla Bell doesn't know what she's supposed to be hearing on the other end. Well, and true. And if I had one complaint, one of my major complaints with this movie, and you know, I mean, I mean, the biggest known name is that who appears on the screen is Katie cat is basically Katie Cassidy. And then the guy from the Avengers for like a minute or two. So I, I mean, I'm not knocking anybody, but the acting could have been a little better. I don't, I mean, I don't know if this is cause this is from mostly unknowns and this might've been their first thing, or it was a low budget film or they're all young or whatnot. But I mean, the, the acting after a while kind of, you know, kind of got on my kind of got on my nerves. Camilla Bell has been around for a while. I mean, she started on TV back in the nineties when she was a kid and she's kind of worked her way, you know, up to uh-huh. stardom and stuff. And she's, she's been in a couple of big movies here and there and stuff, but she sort of always plays the sort of typified millennial generation emo girl, <laughs> but one who looks pretty and doesn't totally go, you know, all over the edge with it, you know, but she's supposed to always kind of, she's got that kind of all permanent frown on her face and she's always looks like she's angsty about something. I mean, that's yeah, what she's she, kind of like Kristen Stewart. There you go. Yeah. She's sort of, she's kind of a pre-run. Oh, Kristen, Kristen Stewart, Stewart gets on my nerves. Yeah. That's another podcast. <laughs> that's a, that's a way another podcast, but yeah, she definitely has that Kristen Stewart vibe going for her. She's a little bit older, but yeah, she came up before that. So that's a good way to describe her. And her performance is similar to that in here, though. I would say she does, when she's allowed to act like a teenager, she has a lot more to do. When she's having to deal with him on the phone, uh-huh. it, there's just something that doesn't quite work about it. But like you said before, it goes by so dang fast, you really don't care. 
Because you know it's all leading up to a chase, and there's a couple of chases and stuff. Now, what did you make of the fact that Tiffany comes over, and they have that little talk, and then Tiffany gets ready to leave, and like I said, we got to have a body count, and we get her killed? Well, I thought, when I first saw, before I realized what was going to happen, uh, I thought that was kind of pointless. I'm like, why, why is she coming over? This is absolutely pointless. And then I also thought this is where it kind of gets non-plausible or it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the plot i'm like okay they're all supposed to be at this bonfire right right and why and i mean we had the like two minutes of her dad driving and lecturing her up to this house in the middle of nowhere and telling her that the doctor will drive you back home because i don't want you driving at night and it's not safe and so what if you don't have your car it's not safe driving anyway so okay, what is going to possess this girl who apparently was her friend, but not a very good one because she made out with her boyfriend or whatnot and, or made out with um, Bobby and drive all the way out to this stupid house and um, in the middle of nowhere just to tell her, hey, um, I kissed him because you, you, you know, I went out for him with one day and then he dumped me to go out with you or whatever. Well, I, I just I, thought that was kind of stupid. It, it's convenient. You're you're not wrong. They they want a convenient reason to have her out there to have a body count. She's already been made out to be despicable. Uh -huh. We're not supposed to like her, and we have to have some reason for her to die. But well, see, I don't think they did a very good job at the beginning of saying how despicable she was well, because they. It's just kind of like a teenage. I think they even said something. This is so high school, and I think Jill goes because we are. Jill or Scarlett says we are in high school. It's, yeah, and I like that little call out, but I'm with you. They could have used a minute or two more to establish the friendship and how maybe it had been damaged. Yeah, and, and I needed Tiffany to have a little more of a, hey, let's go party and be friends. A little less of that, and more of a, hey, I'm really sorry, you know. And then they kind of kiss and make up, and then she goes on her way. Because as it is, Jill's like, you got to go, because I'm going to get in trouble if you're yeah. here. I can't blow this. And so that's why she leaves, and she walks into the death trap, which is out of every slasher film ever. The the killer sets up something for you to go and investigate, and then that's how you get killed. Well, I mean, and then the other thing that got me is I don't I don't live on a creepy well, I think my neighborhood's kind of creepy. I take that back, but it's nothing creepy like this in the movie. <laughs> and we're all we're all like normal looking, you know, normal houses. But um, I just thought it was um, me if if you know I'm here by myself or it's just me and the kids, and my husband's out of town or something. And granted, I have a, a much smaller house than the one in this movie, and nor do I have all the glass all over. But if my alarm went off, or if I if my alarm went off in my house, I would be grabbing my kids and busting through a window or something. I wouldn't be so nonchalant. That was something that struck me too when the alarm went off that the she was so nonchalant and the mom called and was so nonchalant about it. Like, oh yeah, I told I told um, Rosie that uh, Ro Rosie or Rosa Ro Rosa. Rosa, I told Rosa, I don't know how many times I've told Rosa not to do that and blah, 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 blah. I, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't care. I would have got those kids. I would have called the police. And cause, and then also the other thing is like my alarm company. Yeah. The alarm company did call. I would have told the alarm company. I don't know call the police and then yeah um, she she plays off like she knows way too much about this house for having been given a five minute tour of it yeah you know like and yeah kinda, i was kind of like I, this is that the other was kind of like a you know what we talked about before it would have been cool if jill or even in the last one if julia had like known the family and like there was a uh -huh. relationship there, this should have been like why do i have to go out to the mendrakis's place dad they're weird like just one or two lines yeah. you know and then we would have been like oh she knows these people 
And that's how they got hooked up with her. I mean, they, we needed just, I mean, for a slim movie, they could have thrown us a line or two to fix that little plot hole. Because I'm with you, a lot of this stuff starts happening for convenience. And it's there for one reason, one reason only, though. And, and it's called opening weekend screams. All right, There's nothing like people who walk in who say, hey, let's go see a scary movie. Sure. And they have no idea what it's about. And it jumps out at them and gets them. You know, mm-hmm. and so that is one of those things that builds false tension and it gets you to sort of go like, oh, it's really nothing there. Then when the guy does come out from around the corner and grabs her hair and all that stuff, it it makes that so much more tense. But that's all it's there for. It's cheap scares. And that's just that's just a horror movie trick. And it's part of this era. But I'll go with it because as things begin to escalate, I'm starting to get really involved because the one thing Jill does well here is she has the same thing Carol Kane did when she starts calling the cops, she starts to feel really helpless. Like I've called the people I should call and they're useless to me again. I've got to keep him on the phone. How do I do that? Well, figure something out. You know, I mean, that's all it is. And I, I like the fact that it's set up, Jill, you've got to take responsibility for yourself you know and then she starts doing the things like you said she's checking on the kids she's looking around the corner she's waiting and she keeps getting these weird calls and it gets weirder and weirder and as she goes around i mean she has that whole seeing somebody in the guest house and it turns out to be their son who's not supposed to be there or something like that and then she can't find the maid and you know that's when everything starts breaking loose on her and i'll tell you if they had gone three or four more minutes there in the middle i'm with you i was starting to go like okay let's get somewhere please yeah then they turn the you know the the flames on because the third act of this is really him chasing her through the house and aside from the bad lance hendrickson voice phone calls Every bit of that works for me. I like it. I like all of the little fights they get in, and I like how she finds the dead bodies and all that stuff. I mean, he's like he's left them there to scare her some more, and and I buy it. I'm going with it. And uh, what I liked about the, this is that in their interaction is one of the complaints we had about, and I said this before, about the second movie especially, is she doesn't play a victim. She, she, you know, as, as I joke with my kids or my coworkers, I'm like, she puts her big girl panties on and she gets those kids and she does what she needs to do to protect. She does what she thinks she can do to protect them. She doesn't, you know, it's not like in the first movie with Carol Kane where she's, where Jill's looking up and barely sees him and opens the door and runs into runs into one of the cops or something it's um she you know she does what any responsible i would think 16 year old babysitter would do she takes care or any person any responsible person would do this is totally a lift off of the laurie strode character from the original halloween and to some extent ripley and aliens but it's really more laurie strode because if you watch the original halloween there's a point where she locks the kids in the bathroom and then she fights Michael Myers and she stabs him, thinks she's killed him and she goes and gets him. And she's like, kids, are you okay? Are you okay? Okay. I want y'all to run across the street. You know, and she gets him out of the house. Like she's constantly sort of hurtling uh, or uh, huddling the kids together and making sure they're okay. And I like that Jill did that. She's like, I'm not letting anything happen to these kids. I'm getting these Mm -hmm. kids and we're getting out of this house. And I'm with you. She's not a victim. And I really like, I really like that about this. I really like that in this movie. Yeah. It makes it much more interesting because again, it gives you something to buy into her you now you root for her you're like yeah, you gotta get the kids out of the house come on jill get the kids out of the house and as it just keeps going on and i like the fight in the greenhouse too that that he's in there and he drags her down under the water and she's got all the sprinklers going and the way like he catches her hair as she's running through the door and essentially rips it out i mean i thought god that's really just ugh. And, and i bought that because for a movie that's relatively bloodless you know, to be PG-13, they do a lot of things to get your goat. And I, I dug all of that. I like the fact that she fights back with him because we, we're paying off the fact that, look, this girl's an athlete. She's not just some chick uh-huh. that walked up off the street. So she could, I mean, we talked about how Tracy could have beat Kurt Duncan in the ground, right? I, yeah. You know, Jill might not have beat him, but she knew how to get around him. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Well, that's, how, that's um, my um, husband and I were actually joking this evening um, I was complaining to him about something and I was like, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm just, 
I'm halfway joking. I never do this, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to kick your butt. And he's like, don't, he's like, go ahead and try. I can outrun you. So (laughs) that, that may be true actually. So yeah, that is, that is how far and how fast he can run. Yeah. But I like, I like that, you know, this guy is bigger than Jill. I mean, Jill, Camilla Bell is small. She's a little pixie. Oh, and they, they, I do. I mean, I was going to go back to this at this point too, but at where she's running around that track. Yeah. Small. She, she, I mean, (laughs) she's not like America's next top model anorexic small. You know, it's like five feet tall, small. She's just, she's a petite woman. Exactly. She's just petite. And this guy, you know, Tommy Flanagan's kind of a tall, wiry guy, but he's big. You know, mm-hmm. and so when he lowers himself down in front of her, he's a big dude, you know, and that I liked the fact that she was going to have to use her smarts and her speed to mm-hmm. outdo his strength. And that's ultimately what happens. I mean, and, you know, she grabs that poker and stabs him and then lights the, you know, turns the fire furnace on and it kind of blows up in his face. And I like that. I like that, that a satisfying ending and the fact that the cops actually show up. And do something, you know. This movie ends like it's supposed to. The cops mm-hmm. arrest the guy. They don't, you know. The fat cop doesn't roll in and shoot him. You know, Jill doesn't commit. Murder. And the old, the old. No, you forgot old and fat. Yeah, the old and fat guy doesn't shoot him. And some random other person doesn't intervene for Jill. Her, you know, Agent Coulson doesn't show back up and blast him. She doesn't pick up a gun and commit murder as a sixteen-year-old. She stabs him and she gets the heck out of the place. And you know, she defends herself. Defends those kids gets out of there and then the cops are there and they take the guy away and that's when we get that one shot of his face which you know you can tell just creeps her out even more i I thought that was great and then we get that little coda and what did you make of the little dream sequence fake out thing at the end i don't know that kind of almost ruined it for me it's cool it's kind of cool but it kind of almost it kind of almost ruined it but the more I think about it, the more I think it makes sense. Well, I like the fact that they go with the fact that she is now damaged from this, that you don't just go through this and then, okay, I'm fine. Cause that's the, in this film's era, that would be what happens. We just shot everybody in the face. Now we're all okay. Let's go party. You know, that, that isn't what's going to happen. She's screwed up from this and, it leaves it on that real John. And it, or- it's believable. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's like the best thing, if it's the best plot point to do, but it, like you're saying, it is believable. I mean, it was very hard to believe that. And the first one that, you know, that a wh- horrible thing happened. And um, I mean, like in the first one, even, she didn't. She got out of the house, and the kids were all mangled and stuff. So it's hard to believe that that didn't. And I think that's one thing that's more believable in the even the second one, and this and the reimagined one. It it seemed like in the first one that didn't bother Jill. You know, she went about her life. She became a philanthropist. Her husband got a promotion and blah, 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 blah. It, it didn't bother until she got that phone call and she lost her mind at the restaurant. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, it was like repressed memory, but they did nothing to set that up. Yeah. You know, I, I'm the, with you. That even was- the second one was more believable where, you know, she became this with, with um, drawn college student and stuff and that's you know and she needed a counselor and all this stuff that and may, that I makes, sense. Say, this makes I, sense i mean they didn't they didn't credit fred walton for any of this but the people that made this movie obviously watched the other one and i would think they maybe even saw the second one and mm-hmm. realized there's stuff here we can play on we can work with this and i like at the end i know it's the big fake out it's always the big cheat to have the hallucination last scare there's always one last scare but i like that they leave it with that john carpenter-esque very dour ending. We don't know if like she's completely lost her mind now. What's going to become of her? her? You know, one of her best friends has been killed. She's seen dead bodies all over the place. She's been attacked. You know, she's going to struggle with some traumatic stress. And I like that it's basically them trying to strap her down and medicate her back to sleep at the end. It gives it a real dark ending. I mean, it's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. And it makes it more. It makes it more like a psychological thriller than a horror movie. Right. The stakes all pay off to something. That is how, could you imagine if they had had 
this script, but had um, Carol Kane. Oh, and Kurt or the the Carol Kane and the guy who played Kurt Duncan. Yeah, and that and how creepy that would how how that would have worked if they had that house and this script and, and set it up like that. And it, how good that movie would have been. Well, and it's why I'm hoping somewhere down the line they go back to this again. Hollywood recycles everything. If they go back to it one more time, they might get it perfect the next time around because this is closer but it's still not perfect so oh yeah it, 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 if 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 we're on a scale of one to ten and ten is perfect this is a solid 8.5 almost a nine well that's an interesting way to segue into final thoughts recommendations and popcorn ratings so what are yours for when a stranger calls the 2006 remake? i'm gonna give it a large with no butter and I was going to say like a medium and a half. <laughs> I'm like a large no butter because um, I really, I, I don't like the horror genre because you know, I'm a big old chicken, big old scaredy cat, but I really liked this movie. This, the script was good. The, you know, for a horror movie, the script was, you know, was good. I mean, and I was thinking this as we're doing the podcast. I mean, you can kind of sometimes equip, you know, equate these scripts and, you know, these bloody, gushy movies to basically porn. It's just the other <laughs> side. It's just the other yeah. side of the spectrum. But, I mean, the script was good. It, the plot was good. Yeah, the acting was eh, so-so, but they did a lot of stuff right. They made the house a character. You know, the house became its own kind of character and its own kind of creepiness. And they did a lot a lot of stuff right. So I would give it, um, like you said, it's not perfect. It's There's still some, some things you could, you know, there's some things to complain about. But, but all in all, it's good. And I don't typically like this genre. So I didn't think it was that bad. Well, so I, I give it a large with no butter. I'm going to go large with butter. I think it's just a large popcorn. I think it's a good movie. And I think this gets panned again because of some of the stigmas that it has PG-13. It's teen horror from that era. Oh, it's got to be awful. And it's really not. It's really good. And it's worth a watch. If you saw it when it came out and you were like, yeah, I don't know, rewatch it. Or if you've never seen it and you're, you're following this with us you know, for the first time like Anna's been, this one's definitely worth a look. I mean, I don't know that I could ever tell anybody you have to watch the first one completely through. You watch the first 20 minutes, you kind of got it. Uh, there's no reason at all to ever see the second one. You've heard us talk about it. This one's one you can watch, and I think it's a good, fun watch. It's a it's a popcorn movie in every sense. You know, I mean, it's just there for that kind of good, cheap thrill, and it's one of those fun ones. It's not on TV much, but you can find it in the cheap bin at your local video store and stuff, folks. So, I uh, video store, God, do those even exist? You can find it in like the cheap bin at the DVD. Yeah, sales they, they existed <laughs> back when you could go over by eight hundred. <laughs> this is true. So, but it's definitely worth a watch. I recommend it. I think it's good, and I give it large popcorn. It's not perfect, though. Then, and, and that's why I say, if they want to go back to this again, they've got the right script. I don't even know that they need to change that. Just update it a little bit. Oh, and, they got the right set too. Yeah, they got the right set. You got to get get a little bit better on the actor side and do the stunt casting with the voice right. And and I think you got to get an actor that can play both parts. I think you got to get somebody that can be creepy with their voice and then with their body too. You get that right. Like you say, you'll never get a guy like Johnny Depp, but if you can think like the poor man's version of that somewhere out there, that's the way to go. Somebody that people will recognize that, oh, God, he's the bad guy. Like Kiefer Sutherland has done this in his later career. Keanu Reeves did it. Those kind of guys. Get those guys to do it. Ethan Hawke, somebody like that. And it would be really interesting. Uh, I think this movie could Ethan Hawke would be good. I think this movie could work again. And I hope to see it come around one more time because I, this one is satisfying. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say something. I think this one's more satisfying as a rewatch than, obviously, than the second one and even the first one. And I'm a big fan of that first one. But this is a better quality film all the way. 
and I would never tell you otherwise. So it's a it's a recommend large popcorn for me too. So well, and I know it's not your thing, but it's been really fun talking about when a stranger calls with you. So it has been. It yeah. has been. It wasn't as bad as I thought. I did. and so I'm hoping maybe maybe just maybe we can sneak a couple more of these in on you down the line somewhere. So but we got one more thing coming out for Shocktober for you folks. You know Brian and I have told away. It's time for the little green friend. Yes, on Halloween. <laughs> yep, we have watched and we will now have Leprechaun 4 in space for you for Halloween. Our little gift to you. So enjoy. Whoa, 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 whoa. back up. You, you said in, in, in space? It is in space, yes. <laughs> oh, oh, I wish I wish someone could see my face laughing. <laughs> well, I can't promise I laughed while watching it, but I'm sure we'll have laughs as we talk about it. Those just, those... so, 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 well, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I got to take a step back here and say what executive someone came to them and goes, OK, we're going to do a fourth leprechaun. But they're going to be in space. Here's the actual story of how it happened. An, an artist worked at the studio and he saw a picture of the Apollo 13 poster and he drew the leprechaun's face over Tom Hanks' face and someone said, I like it. Do it. <laughs> that's exactly how that movie got made. So, well, that's like the story about Talladega Nights. With, <laughs> they were like Will Ferrell and Na- as a NASCAR driver. <laughs> Greenlit it, which exactly. I love that movie. Well, well, that movie, that movie is far superior to Leprechaun Four. Spoiler, <laughs> but but anyway, I think the Kim Kardashian sex tape is more <laughs> far superior. I wouldn't know. You can tell us all about that in your own retrospective. Uh, but no, uh, I wouldn't know either. But I just have, I just have a feeling. Well, it's going to be a fun ride. The last three have been fun with Brian and I, and so folks, that'll be out for Halloween. Then we'll start getting ready for our big Stephen King retro that Nick and I are going to do. We've always got other things up our sleeves, though. You never know what we're going to come up with. It'll be more holiday time, so we may actually do, like, real holiday films this year. You never know. I mean, you, we, at Filmstrip, we kind of just hit the variety button and see what happens. Check out our archives on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies, and hey, if you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, our sister podcast, The Art of Slaying, is um, part of the Continuous Play universe. You can uh, listen to four full seasons of episode reviews, and as of the release of this we're getting right there close to the release of season five stuff so all that there available for you at our website check up with us on facebook and twitter you can follow what uh, we're going to be working on next we'll ask you questions all that stuff leave us feedback let us know what you think as always we do this for fun and we do it because you guys enjoy it too so until next time for anna i'm jay thanks for tuning in to film strip Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.